0: This is Runehammer. Up on Ghost Mountain, there's a lot of strange stories. A lot of scary ones, too. One of the worst was when the old devil himself came up from his black pit, paid a visit to Dead Rock. Rolled into town, whooping and a pistols blazing. Every fool stood up against him, though. Instead of just dying in the dirt, come back, sort of rise up, turn into these sort of bone-faced, horned things. Infernals. Joining his ranks. Now, first, most folk thought the devil just came to Dead Rock to have a good time, throw some dice, play some cards, and drink some whiskey. But he had a very specific mission in mind, and that was to acquire three magical skulls. Weird old relics. Some say come from back in the Hippowa days before white men ever even came to these valleys. Either way, them skulls got some kind of weird power. Folks say it can send the devil back to hell for good. Uh, naturally, if that were true, he wanted to acquire said relics and do whatever it takes to find him. Now one after the next, posses from all over the land got together, loaded up their guns, and tried to make their big raid on Dead Rock, dethrone the devil, send him back to his pit. All they did was add to his army. And now that town is a-swarmin', I tell you. Swarmin' every inch of it. With them infernal whoopers and whompers. And that's why I've pulled you up out of your grave, my strange and rotten friends. of you are gonna form the posse that ends this nightmare. And I know you've been dead a while, but don't let that slow you down. All these guns are filled with silver bullets. And them horses... Well, they're ghosts straight out of hell themselves. Now I want you to hit that town. I want you to find them skulls. And let's put an end to this thing once and for all. I'll see you on the other side. Godspeed. Oh, wait. there's One more thing. You gotta watch out for the devil's ultimate weapon. Folks say he doesn't really use it except in a last minute of desperation, so... You may not ever see the damn thing. Hell, may not even be real. Folks say he's got in a back room in the old Golden Goat Saloon. Sort of a black box or a a safe-like object. Could be small or big, I'm not sure. Could be the size of a house for all I know, but folks say it sort of whirs and hums, makes a clicking sound. Kind of gets inside your brain. The only name I've ever heard for it. Is the RPG mainframe? Hey Hey, greetings program, sold hankering furnail here, yo buddy from RPG land on the internets, and we are back once again with the Libreco Master here on the Runehammer Podcaster. Thanks everybody for tuning in, and thanks uh, new patrons for showing up. Welcome to the Looney Bin. Um, We are trucking along. This is episode 23 of the RPG Mainframe, where we think deeply about the hobby that we all know and love so much in all of its aspects. Not just like getting together with your homies playing on Saturday night, but Everything else involved, writing, drawing, being creative, sculpting, painting, dreaming, reading, basically all the cool stuff in life. Oh, drinking beer, too. Uh. Anywho, this week we are just doing a big old mailbag. Now, if you guys want to jump in on the mailbag, the way you do it is you email hankering.furnail.com at gmail.com and put the word mailbag in your subject line so I can find things later because I'm bumbling around in the dark with this whole RPG life. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, then I'll I'll get to your question and we'll get it on the podcast, okay? So please send your questions and I will do my best not to completely botch the answers and uh, keep y'all entertained while you're on your commutes out there. So everybody uh, take care of each other and let's get into this mailbag. So uh, where's that stinking music? Do I have a button for that over here somewhere? Um, Oh, here it is. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. (laughs) let's go see what's in the mail today. Man, that guy's got a great voice for being seven inches tall. Okay. We got some real doozies. So thank you, everybody, for sending the questions in to my email with mailbag because it's really easy to sort these. And I think we're going to just get much more substantive answers and specific answers for what you guys are asking. Rather than what I was doing before, which is kind of partially working off memory, kind of compiling questions from Facebook and all over the place and just like shibbity-bap-bop, this is going to be a lot cleaner. So let's just get into this, right? Let's talk about some stuff. What do you say? So first we got old Dylan Nagel up here, and he is asking about exciting rooms versus storytelling. So... The, the trouble that he's run into is he's really adopted a bunch of the Runehammer methods, right? He's doing his timer, threat, treat kind of stuff. He's thinking in little digestible pieces of gameplay, presenting him to his players, and his players are getting used to this kind of, you know, almost survivalist uh, mindset in their game. Now, at first, that sounds like a really good thing, right? It sounds really exciting. But his problem, and I have this struggle in my game as well, is that sometimes when you think this way... Your, your game can become a little bit of like a, a survival board game, right? It can become all about like moving and avoiding the mechanics and then working the combat and then getting through the exit and getting to the next room, and it all starts feeling a lot like a board game. And you miss some of these like story arcing pieces that make our hobby so different from board games. So he's asking, you know, how do I do this? And, you know, he had a great line in his question, which is that I find myself not building heroes, but building survivors as the DM, because these these players are in this mindset they could die any moment, and he's not getting this arc. So, I mean, the answer to how to do this is you're going to have to confront the slightly scarier, slightly formless side of the game, right? which is this kind of storytelling side of the game. And usually unfortunately this leads to a place where you're like speaking in npc voices and i know that a lot of dms out there myself totally included have difficulty like getting into a character of an npc you know we're not all voice actors and have this kind of real natural ability to just dive into it you know there's a lot you can feel self-conscious about that stuff but i can tell you a lot of the magic of the long arcs that make characters unique and make them grow and give them moral dilemmas and stuff happens in dialogue in dialogue between them and NPCs. And so I think at some point in your game you're going to have to break this chain of action rooms. You're going to have to break out of that pattern and you're going to have to propose a personal situation. Um and that personal situation is, you know, something like, you know, the family that needs to be rescued or, you know, the the man of dubious honor who's going to hire you to, you know, exact revenge on this guy who's evil anyways, but he's kind of, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and like, you know, there's a bit of a dilemma there, and it's like unclear morality, and whenever morality is unclear, that's where the decisions of the players are going to sort of define who they are. The other one is to offer these formless opportunity to players, and let them run. And, and this just means ease up on all the action. And every once in a while, just let your prayers just kind of run and talk. Now, this is against a lot of these sort of live-in-turns-type mindset of ICRPG and so on and so forth. But remember, all rules are meant to be bent and broken. So when you feel like you're doing too much life in turns, it's just just open it up. It's all good. They'll wind up like making some gear, and they'll wind up healing to full. But they'll also have these conversations, and you just get into some free-flowing narrative about what happened to the family or, you know, like... This one character's wife, you know, has befallen this illness and like things be- begin to have this gravity to them. You're going to have to face that at some point if you want these kind of deeper arc feelings. So, you know, th- this is a legit problem, you know, is you can just get into too much of a board game feel. So at some point you're just going to have to use that formulas type of play to to get the magic. Okay, so next we have L. C. Kaufman. Um he says, Hey, I love Warp Shell. It's my favorite uh, setting in ICRPG. Um, could you talk about some more stuff uh, of lore like you did with Alfheim and any plans for a Warp Shell novel? Um, you know, I did start a Warp Shell novel and I found that it was just very off target for what I write. And so I don't know, that's sputtered a little bit, to, just to be honest. <laughs> okay, as for lore on. Warp Shell. That is going to be a huge topic. Warp warp Shell is a much bigger setting than Alfheim. So, Elsie Kaufman, thanks a lot for the message. I think I'm going to table your question into a full podcast. So, uh, we'll do that next week, okay? So, this uh, past, or two weeks past, we did the Alfheim lore dump. So, we'll do a Warp Shell lore dump um, next week, okay, when I get back from Reno, and we'll have fun with that. So, thanks for the question, and I'll just put that up on the board. Okay, next we have Hunter. Hey, Hunter. Hunter Barhart is a die-hard shield dwarf over here. He asks, I was wondering if you could discuss where the Mud Trilogy came from. They're some of my favorite fantasy novels. Thanks, dude. Can't wait to read the third one. Well, I, I assume by came from you mean kind of where the idea came from and what what, what started all of it. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar, this is my trilogy of novels that's now available in one book on Amazon called The Legacy of Mud. Um... Where it came from. Well, it eventually, it originally started as a NaNoWriMo writing challenge. So, um, you do this thing where it's you try to write 50,000 words in 90 days, I think was the challenge. And uh, actually, you know, kind of wound up going way past that challenge. But it started that way. And then I didn't have any intention of writing anything cohesive. So, I just wanted to write some scenes. And then later, I started connecting the dots and so like I wrote the opening scene with Vald and the hunchback and everything and um, just for fun just to just to to write almost like a short story and then I wrote a few other short stories which were like where mud looks into the pools and uh, where horn is out there fighting the Raiders and stuff and it's just they were completely unrelated and then it occurred to me like hey these could be a party and I could pull these guys together with a story and then I just improvised it I just sort of let the novel guide me as I went And uh, the more it happened, the more just these books are writing themselves at this point almost. It's really weird. They're like talking to me from inside their own world. So the fourth one now is uh, Dobbs Dim, which is the story of Dobbs Tarney from the first book, Um, the guy who saves Sylvie when she's in the crypt, and it's his life story. And so they're they're just kind of opening up in front of me. I don't really have a method or a a place I can point to that say where they came from. So thanks for the question, Hunter. Okay, Dave Ism. What do we got here? What are some mechanics that can be used for the racing component in the Speed Kills Adventure? How do the cars actually race? Okay, and does, is this what Junkt addresses? No, Junkt is totally separate. Junkt is not an RPG. It's just a, more of a board game. But this is a great question. How do you do the racing in Speed Kills? Well, you're not going to, like, you know, come up with a conveyor belt of terrain, right? But maybe you don't want to just play entirely theater of the mind either, which would be the easiest way to do a giant desert race. So if you are using miniatures, the way that I suggested it in the book is you actually use a dice based on the speed differential between the cars. And that dice is how long before the car is just like, just bolts, is just out of range. So the faster the car, if it's a hyper-fast car, in 1D4 rounds, unless, if a car next to it isn't hyper-fast, it's just going to be gone they just going to disappear onto the horizon. And this is how I'm doing racing. And so when you're rolling for those sort of disappear rolls, it's kind of like how much throttle those cars are are getting. So instead of thinking about exactly where are the cars relative to each other, you're really only asking sort of how long until this car reaches escape velocity. And then you can play, you can be a little bit flexible before that, but that's the only real mechanic that I propose. And then if they hit anything or something like that, then they drop right back into the sort of the pack. But the pack, in my opinion, is sort of amorphous. You know, it could be kind of whatever. But as I mentioned, any time that a maneuver happens, like let's say I want to swerve over so that someone can jump off my car onto another one, I would get a roll for that, and if you fail the roll, you're going to drop behind the other car. Now, how far do they disappear? You know, all these things can be just make calls while you play. But uh, I've always found that the more rules you impose on car combat, the more impossible and slow and bogged down it gets. And so I'd rather play the scene and let the DM and a little bit the players sort of just let's narrate our way through this and figure out what these roles should be and just truck through rather than try to simulate an actual car battle, which I think is even more complex than, you know, like two sword fighters battling each other. So that's my general answer on how you do the racing, is you use these dice, and when that that much time runs out, that's when the car takes off unless something stops it, like hitting an obstacle, being shot, being rammed, all this kind of stuff. So there's no absolute movement, it's relativistic movement. Okay, next one we have Jason Connerly, um, and we covered this in the live stream on Friday night, but that was a drinking stream, so I don't keep those archived because uh, it's not very flattering, (laughs) so to speak. But he's asking, is there an update on Junked? Absolutely, Junked is all but done. I am waiting to do a playtest on July 7th with the guys from Absolute Tabletop. We're going to refine the rules, and then once everything feels good, I'm going to not only announce it to the world but also take it down to Atcon in Tacoma, and also take it to Gen Con. So um, if you don't know what junked is, that's okay. I've kept it pretty stinking secret, um, exactly what it is, but uh, it'll all be coming out here in just a few weeks, so we're almost there. Okay, so next up we have Lon Prater, who asks, uh, can you talk a bit about your perspective on balancing player power at a party or a table? Uh, Both the meta stuff of them getting loot and other bennies, as well as uh, classes and creating other classes. Well, I have talked about this in a YouTube video, and I just have to unfortunately repeat myself, which is, the only measure of player balance at a table is how much time that they devour. I don't think that damage, or magic, or capability of any kind is salient to balancing player power. It's sheerly time. And... By time, what I mean is how much time they hog. Like, how much time is it their turn? Are they talking? This is the only commodity to me that needs to be balanced at a table between players and between the DM. Everyone, to me, at a good game is talking about the same amount. And eating up the same amount of time. So if one person's turn is continually taking longer than the others, that is unbalanced. That is lame. (laughs) And sometimes you'll notice more skilled players actually just becoming annoyed and really wanting their turn to go super fast as a way to keep the game moving because they keep waiting on this one player. Now that player could be underpowered as far as in-game capability goes, but since they're hogging time at the table, they're actually the most overpowered character. Time at the table, the spotlight time, is the fundamental commodity of our hobby. And so as the DM, what I would work toward is really getting that to balance. So you're more shy, more express character, you know, who does fast turns. I would try to draw them out a little bit. And then you're, you know, looking up my spell details and, you know, sending people on rule book, you know, turkey hunts. That person needs to be reeled in and so on and so forth. So just just balance time usage. And I think then power usage. I mean, you can have one player that's way more powerful than the other. That's fine but not one player that hogs more time than the other. That's not fine. All right, next we get one from the incomparable Matt Shaker. How might you do orcs in Alfheim as a playable race? Where might they live and what would their challenges be and what does their society look like in the canon of Alfheim? Okay, well, first of all, um, there's a lot of uh, detail on this in the third novel, which follows an, an orc hero and her sort of journey so you can take a look at that. Uh, that that details some of my my perception of orcs um, as a playable race. Uh, I think you've got a simple sort of setup on your hands. I would either make um you know an an archery orc or a sort of a rager or barbarian you know battle axer. I mean nothing terribly creative there, but to me those are the most interesting. Um, orc magicians always feel a little weird to me. Um, uh, the, the closest thing to that would be my character, Mud, which is, he's not a magician so much as maybe a, a shaman or a, a druid in a way. Um, but I imagine them as very natural, as very tribal. Um, as far as where they live, I would definitely do the Pine Ocean um, in Nordheim or, Nordheim, or I would do um, up in Ire, which is where Rel is from in the novel, and um, But honestly, you know, orcs are ubiquitous. I wouldn't say as ubiquitous as humans, but uh, I'd say anywhere where there's no civilization, they could make little settlements. You know, they're um, nomadic, I think, would be cool, Uh, like almost with a Mongolian sort of style of technology. Um, I think their challenges is that they're hated by everybody, but they're in fact totally good guys. Um, That people perceive them as monstrosities, but their people were, in my world, were created by elves, and, uh, you know, they didn't choose to, to look a little different, and, and I would play on that. I would I would play on being hunted, and I think that would be really cool if you were a group, say, of playable orcs, um, is that you're constantly hunted wherever you go, so you have to stay relatively secret and, and hidden wherever you go as far as cities and other settlements go, and you, you don't want to be killing humans that are after you, because they're not evil, they're just misguided. Um, so, that could pre- present some really interesting moral situations for, for sort of good guy orcs. Um, bad guy orcs, I think, would not be fun at all. I think that is so on the nose with the this sort of stereotype. You just have players who are bad guy orcs and they're just killing people, and that's just horrible. That just sounds morally bankrupt to me. Um, and as far as their society, I think it'd be neat to have like a, um, a matriarchy, you know, so they have like these old women. Who are sort of you know like read the bones kind of characters and and when they when they throw the bones onto this kind of weird mat they they read these portents of the future and they sort of send these parties of adventurers out to do cool errands you know to find the anchor of time or to I don't know to recover a crystal or to you know uh, rescue one of the the royal bloodline of the orcs or something like this um but you know i don't think it's wildly different from any other kind of playable race i think it's just a uh, Don't be on the nose about it. That'd be my advice. Don't just make a bunch of nasty, evil orcs that are raiding human villages and stealing their stuff. That just... That has no potential to me. (laughs) It's just like... We're not even murder hobos. We're just orcs. (laughs) Okay, thanks for the question, though, man. Okay, so next one we got here from German Sanders. Uh, Have you given any thought to the comment uh, regarding the Mythic GME? Yeah, so... We've been talking a little bit. I did a podcast about the GM less game, and there is a resource out there called the GM emulator. um, And you guys can check it out. But really, I think it just adds up to um, a set of tables. And, you know, tables can replace your GM in some ways, in a mechanical way. But I think only if your players, you know, are really animated and colorful and and willing to to world build together as you play. If that's the case, if like all the players in your group are are GMs or former GMs, then yeah, you're going to have an easy time making a GM-less game. It should be no big deal. But check out the GM emulator, uh, folks. You can search that GMA. Uh, Mythic GME is the search you want to do if you want to check that out. So thanks for the suggestion, German. Um, what do we have down here? Uh, no, this is... Okay, am still looking through my stuff here. Okay, we got two more. Um, next one is from William Holler. You get to holla back. Uh. Um, and his question is, and I may have answered this a little bit before in a in previous podcast, but he uh, is asking my life story. This is from a while ago. This is March 7th, so I may have answered this one, but he's asking my life story. I think by this time, you guys should know my life story. You know, I've uh, I've, I've been through the same amount of stuff as any any RPG weirdo out here, and uh, now my goal is to keep this train rolling and, and keep publishing books. I mean, as far as my past, you know, uh, I've been in video games and uh, I've been a writer and an artist and a game designer for many years. Um, grew up near Boulder, Colorado for a while, you know, and I um, do motorcycles and stuff. and um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm just excited to, to try to keep on writing and work my way into truly being a novelist. I think the, the RPG industry is fascinating to me, but always has been a stepping stone um, my real dream is to be a novelist, um, and so even to inform RPG players via my novels, I think, would be really fun. Um, so that's my dream, and I, I'd rather talk about my dreams than my past, because I'm that way. <laughs> okay, so one last piece, and this is from Kenson. This is a, this is from a while ago, um, but the word mailbag is on here, so it just kind of qualifies. Um Let's see. Do you have any suggestions or uh, for people that want to create books for ICRPG? I'm going to make a world's book as, as best I can and get it up on... Yeah, so ICRPG is absolutely designed for you guys to add to its world. And so that means um, you can use the roots of the system, meaning hearts and targets and all this kind of stuff, creating monsters and settings. And then all you need to do is place the for-use badge on your product and not cannibalize any of the original art from my work, and you're good. Everything else you can do. Um, The other thing we had come up to is like, I I would ask that you not too closely imitate the exact look of my stuff, so that it can be confused with my stuff, because I think that also undermines um, the original work. But anything short of that, rock on. I would love to see the ICRPG world get bigger, just like um, Chris Hatley has been doing with his world. It's totally welcome. So as far as what to do and stuff, well, always make sure you focus on your book craft. You know, Get your book readable and looking good to where it's less about walls of text and more about small, readable chunks. Little bits that I can just absorb and skim and it's broken into boxes and columns and there are nice horizontal rules and headings that are big and easy to see. That, to me, is a huge step a lot of people skip. It's like, get that easy skimming and readability first, then start working on your content. Second one, for every four sentences you write, keep one sentence. Like, brevity, 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 brevity. There's just, I can't say it enough times, brevity is the key. It is the spirit of wit. (laughs) It is is crucial. And like, over-talking can really make a reader tired. So I strongly recommend finding the clutch sentence rather than having six sentences six sentences and that's about it so that's all that i have for um the word mailbag in my mailbag that's it you guys so i hope this was at least uh informative to some uh questions that you guys have been rolling around in your heads um just a quickie little podcast here just episode 23 no big deal um i am really kind of strapped this week for time i'm getting ready to go to reno and uh Oh, boy, here's another fun excitement. We are closing in on the final phase of Cryfoth. so keep an eye out for that. That book is going to be epic. So much artwork in there. Thank you, Dice on Ice, for uh, all your commissions on that. It's been so fun creating Cryfoth. It's just, oh, man, I'm really excited for the world to get their hands on that. And hey, everybody, may your dice roll high. Live well. Love one another. And I'll see you on that old internet, all right? So hang loose. I'll see you for episode 24 after Reno. Okay, bye bye, everybody. Ba-doom.